Amen. Good morning. Um, my name is Eric, and I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. And uh, We've been talking about prayer for three weeks, and I think we don't have moments like that quite enough. In fact, we do it so infrequently where we just let people pray that I'm afraid many of us don't even know what to do with, with that time. It just feels awkward and empty, like something's supposed to be happening. Someone's supposed to be entertaining me. Like, why, why am I just sitting here? Like, we don't often deal well with that, and I think that's a problem. I think we should be uh, teaching each other how to pray on our own and in silence or um, just with music or whatever, like just um, going to God ourselves. Sometimes in worship, we just want to put one thing after another in front of you, let's change the lights, and sometimes it's so insidious, we just use prayer as like a way to change up the stage. While, you're, while your eyes are closed, we're just like setting the thing for the next thing, you know, it's just like crazy. Like, it must be more than that, you know, um, because prayer, if we're to believe the Bible, prayer is, is essential. It's incredibly important. It's what you're made for, to be in communion and communication with the one who made you. Like, nothing is more important than this, but nothing, I think, baffles us, confuses us, frustrates us more than prayer. And so with Earth to God, we're spending eight weeks talking about prayer, and I had a plan, y'all, and it got torn up this week on, like, Tuesday, and I posted some silly little Facebook poll asking people what their normal, typical experience of prayer feels like. And I didn't expect this to be consequential at all. I thought it was just something fun to do on Facebook. This changed the outlook of the rest of our series, in all honesty. I asked people what their typical prayer experience feels like. The one answer I expected most of our Facebook people to answer, because it's a Christian group, was it feels like Kate Winslet in the front of the Titanic. In the beginning, of the movie, not the end, that's a different feeling. But in the beginning of the movie, when she's on the front of it, I'm flying, you know, and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's arms are around her, and that's like the arms of God, like just wrapped around you, I'm flying, you know, that kind of thing. I answered this, even though it's not probably the true answer, I thought that's what Christians were supposed to say, prayer feels like. But I was only one of three people. Giovanna was one of the other ones. <laughs> who said prayer feels like I'm flying. Um, double the amount of people, so twice the amount, six people instead of three, said prayer feels more like waiting in line at the DMV. Like, endless, pointless, frustrating, stuffy kind of, you know, unwelcoming kind of place and, and uh, unpleasant, right? Um, they didn't stop there. 14 people said um, that prayer feels like a bubble bath, which I guess is a good answer, but I hate bubble baths, if I'm being honest. I always feel like I'm going to drown in those things. I don't know why. It's the bubbles. They suffocate me. Anybody else? One guy said yes. Anyone else? Just me. Okay, so I'm going to hang out with that guy in the 845 service, and uh, y'all can have your bubble baths. But 14 people said prayer is like a bubble bath, which I guess is good. Um, zero people said prayer is like giving birth without an epidural. <laughs> Uh, which is good, I guess. Although I will say I expected some people to say that. Like, okay, it's not always, uh, you know, working for me. It's painful. But hey, I'm in it. I'm feeling something when I'm in it. I expected some people to say that. I expected the top two answers, honestly, to be uh, I'm flying. And it's like childbirth without an epidural. <laughs> but three people said I'm flying. Zero people said it's like childbirth without an epidural. The number one answer... And it wasn't even close. You could take all the other answers votes and add them up. It wouldn't even get close 
to the 46 votes, the 46 people who said that prayer most often typically feels like trying to have a conversation with a friend while your phone is blowing up. And blowing up with notifications, not like a, one of the Samsung things that happened a few months back or whatever. Uh, so you just keep getting ding, ding, ding. You know, you're trying to have a conversation and this just keeps happening. What this told me is that distraction is a huge problem for us in terms of our prayer life. Anybody struggle with distraction? All right, me too. One of the insidious things about distraction is how it works is it shames and isolates the distracted person. So you're ashamed of being so distracted because it leads to all kinds of you know, problems and procrastination and all kinds of things. So you think you're the only one. It isolates you. And I didn't even realize that even though it's my biggest problem in prayer, that I'm talking to a room full of people, more than half of whom probably, struggle with the very same thing. Prayer um, requires your presence. In fact, prayer is all about presence and attention. The best of prayer, the meaning of prayer, is your presence and your attention mingling with the presence and the attention of God. That's what prayer is when it's working. When it's not working, someone's not really present. And I would venture to say most of the time it's not God who's not really present. You ever um, uh, have one of those experiences where you're out to dinner or um, like you're on a date maybe, or you're out with friends and you're, you're with them but they're, they're in front of you but they're not really there. This happens all the time lately. Maybe it's just me, <laughs> but people that you're with, like, they're not really there. You know what I mean? Like, they're on their phones, or you can tell they're distracted, or you're saying stuff that they're not really absorbing, like, because you just said what you do for a living, and then they're like, so what do you do for a living? And you're like, I just said it, man, like, two seconds ago. You know what I mean? Like, you ever have that experience? Um, what does that feel like? How does that make you feel? makes you feel like you're talking without being heard. But we want to be heard. We want to be known. And one of the fears that I have, and this is irrational fear because God's not as petty as me. I know what I would do if I was God and people came to heaven and like, hey, I love you. And I, I'd be like, yeah, uh, you were always on your phone. You know, like or something. <laughs> like you didn't really like want me. Um, you wanted something from me, you know. I don't think God's that petty with us. I don't think he'll, I think he's more gracious than that. I don't want to get to heaven though and, and have God tell me somehow that I gave him the same feeling in prayer that other people give me when they're distracted and not really present. But I fear that that's where it leads when we fail to pay attention, when we give in to distractions. Um, and, and I think it's leading to some deeper problems for us. Uh, problems that I want to talk about um, today uh, because I think this problem of distraction actually does relate to some of the questions that we've um, received. Before we get there, I want, to, I want to share an email with you or part of an email. Um, this is from a young woman named Sarah. She's in her 30s. She comes here to the story and um, um, I'm not outing her or anything. There's about 34 Sarahs at the story, so um, you're safe. Uh, but, but I think she identifies um, part of the problem here. 
She says, I've always struggled with prayer. For me, uh, the most difficult part of my faith is prayer. And I do it because I know I should. And because I believe there's power there, but I've always felt a little ridiculous. Or even like my words are bouncing off the clouds. Prayer is just so boring, she said. Those are her caps, I didn't add that. She said, I know that's a terrible thing to say, but you close your eyes, you shut out the other ideas in your mind, it just seems so lonely and dull. I guess I wish I could feel God on the other line. I mean, that's pretty solid. She does a great job of articulating what many of us experience in prayer. Like, I just wish there was something more going on but it just feels so lonely and it feels so boring and it feels like a one-way conversation. So one of the questions today is, uh, does God talk back when we pray? Should I be hearing something when I'm praying? Right? So people claim that God still speaks, like prayer warriors talk about hearing his voice all the time. Um, people still hear his voice. We put most of them in asylums, granted, but... Um, <laughs> People still say they hear the voice. Should I be hearing the voice? And if I'm not hearing the voice, then what am I doing wrong? And I wanna to suggest today that the problem with distraction isn't just that it prevents you from being present with God, but it prevents you from hearing God. Because I believe he still speaks today as much as ever. But it's, I wanna say impossible, anything's possible. It's incredibly difficult to hear the voice of God and to discern it if you're pulled in a hundred different directions and distractions. All right, so um, I, I wanna talk a little bit more about this in detail today. Apparently distraction is not just a problem for Christians. So this is a universal issue. The younger you are, the more likely you are to be distracted and bored out of your mind seven minutes in to a 40-minute sermon, <laughs> so sit tight. Um, but that's how it works, because we're so used to certain uh, streams of information and, and steady streams that we don't know what to do when we're just sitting and being. I would tell you guys, especially young people, that it's part of being truly human to just sit and be. Like, you don't always need to be entertained or distracted. In fact, the best parts of life are when we can just sit and be, but that appears to be a skill that we're losing. It's called focus. Focus is the currency of the future. Young people, if you can learn to focus, you will be very, very successful one day in your career and in relationships because no one else will know the secret that you know. Like when I was a kid growing up in East Texas under the Friday Night Lights culture, they used to say that if you want your kid to succeed, teach him to be a punter because nobody knows how to punt. <laughs> um, that was the currency of my future. No one taught me how to punt. But kids, I'm telling you, focus, focus. Now, it doesn't happen accidentally. Focus is a skill that you learn. Focus is the ability to direct your thoughts free from distraction. It's the discipline, it's work, it's mental exercise to say no to certain irrelevant stimuli and to only say yes to the relevant stimuli or the relevant things, the things that really um, matter. Now, 
If you look in all of the business journals, all over Barnes and Noble, all over the internet, like go to Forbes.com and see what they're talking about, it's all about distraction. And so we have a lot to learn here, and I think some of these studies can inform it. Um, now, if you're somebody that struggles with focus, I just want to tell you that there's hope. You can learn this, but you first need to understand that this is a battle of the mind. And your mind is a battlefield. Um, this is not about your heart. Today, we're not talking about your feelings. The last few sermons on prayer have been more about your experience with God, your feelings with God, your heart in the matter. Today, we're talking specifically about what's going on between your ears, in your mind. We're talking strategy today. So if, this is, if your heart or your mind is a battlefield in every battle, you need a strategy in order to succeed. This is, this is your strategy we're talking about today. When Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. And when Paul says in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and when David says in the Psalms that he prays by considering the heavens, he's thinking, pondering these things. Prayer is very much a matter of the mind. But the mind can so easily be entangled by distractions, and those distractions will keep you from intimacy with God. Not only from being present with him, but from hearing his voice as well. And so we're talking about discipline, self-control, self-denial today. This is uh, the premise of today's talk. Um, the attention span that you have, your attention, is a limited resource. You cannot, despite what you've trained yourself to believe, you cannot pay attention to all things you must make a choice. You know as well as I do, whenever you pretend like you can pay attention to all things, you find yourself incapable of paying attention to anything to the point of absorbing it. You can experience all things, but you can't absorb all things. And so um, when we talk about um, focus, we're trying to decide what to pay attention to and uh, how we make those decisions. Attention is limited, like money is limited, like time is limited. That's why we use the same economic language to describe attention. What do you do with attention? You pay it, you pay attention. Just like you have money that you pay with or you spend money, spend time. You only have so much attention that you can spend in a day. And if we don't prioritize and spend that attention wisely, then we'll find ourselves caught up in um, webs of distraction. All right, so the ability to focus comes when we train our brains to spend attention wisely. I saw this TED talk this week um, that I'd seen before, but I kind of revisited it this week. It's from a French neuroscientist. His name is uh, uh, Jean-Philippe, that sound right? Uh, Jean-Philippe uh, Lachaud is his name. I was going to uh, play the video for you, but it has a really thick French accent. I don't think anyone wants to hear that today, right? Uh, we're in Texas. It's 13 minutes. Nobody, it's too long, all right? So it's, uh, it's, a tough, it's a tough watch. But I'll tell you what he said. It's very, pretty simple. He talked about neuroscientists studying the brain uh, uh, to, the, to the extent that they are starting to zero in on how exactly distraction works. And they want people to understand how to redirect our minds and how to train our brains to deal with the uh, steady streams of stimuli 
and information that we are receiving so that we can choose not to be distracted in our thoughts, right? So we're coming at it from a secular point of view, but I think this is actually pretty helpful. So um, he says there are three systems in your brain that help you determine and discern how to deal with um, different kinds of stimuli. And the three systems are uh, the habit system, the pleasure system, and the executive system. So in the back of your brain is the most basic system. And whenever you're faced with something new or something's put in front of you, um, there is the habit system in the back of your brain that just reacts. It's kind of a involuntary response thing. It's not really an involuntary response by definition, but it feels like it because it just happens. Like you see something familiar and that part of your brain remembers how you respond to things that look like that. And so you can imagine all the ways that the habit system can get you into trouble. <laughs> like if it's not in check and you just need to respond to everything in front of you, like that can be, that can be a problem. But let's say, for example, somebody uh, puts a Topo Chico bottle in front of you. Like, what is the habit system going to tell you to do when there's a bottle of delicious sparkling water in front of you on a hot summer day? Your habit system's going to go, bottle, drink it. Like, that's what the habit system does. There's no filter there. There's no, like, consideration of other possibilities. You just bottle, drink. That's what you do with bottles you drink. Right? And so that's what the habit system does. You can imagine the same kind of reactions to other familiar items. Imagine what you do when you see a puppy. Anytime you see a cute puppy, what do you do? Oh, you know, you get, that's what you do. It's just, and something else has to intervene to keep you from doing this. There needs to be another system in place that goes, oh, rabies, you know, or something. Like, there has to be, otherwise, it's just a puppy, and you just react, right? I have a problem with basketballs. Any time I see a basketball, I, I become distracted. I, I cannot think straight until I have the basketball in my hand. And it, I've, I've loved basketball my whole life. And whenever I'm in a conversation with someone who's holding a basketball, which doesn't happen very, very often, but it happens sometimes, <laughs> I, can't, I can't focus on what they're, what they're saying until I've stolen the basketball away from them. Is there any guy here who relates? Anyway, I want to hold the basketball. I want to dribble it. And then they can talk. I'm with you. I'm with you now. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but that's kind of the habit system in your brain. You kind of know what I'm talking about. And any familiar item in front of you is going to trigger some kind of a familiar response. The second system is a little more, a little more complicated than that. Not too much more. It's called the pleasure system. Um, and the pleasure system is the part of your brain that goes, do it. Do it. You, some of our pleasure systems are more dominant than others, but it's, it's the voice that goes, you only live once, man. Like, you deserve this. Like, it feels good. Do it, man. Do it. Go for it. Like, that's the pleasure system. Um, and the pleasure system thrives on novelty. Novelty of stimuli, so new things, and novelty of information, new information. You can imagine how overwhelmed the pleasure systems are in our brains in 2019, like more than ever, because the information is never ending. There's always a new news story. There's always more information. There's always something else to learn, something else to read about, something else on Twitter, someone else to hate on Twitter. Like there's always something calling us, beckoning us, and the pleasure center is like, do it, let's do it. You know, and the pleasure system never runs out of steam. 
It, all, it thrives on more new stuff. And it's always interesting to see, as Dr. Lachaud said in his talk, what happens with someone who grows accustomed to um, new, a steady stream, constant and steady stream of new stimuli. So when you take them and put them in a more controlled environment, a more sedate kind of setting, like a cubicle at an office. Have you ever had a job in a cubicle? Have you ever known someone who is, you know, kind of ADD by nature and like they get a job in a cubicle and it lasts about half a day, you know, like, or, or, or someone who's, who loves video games. Everything in video games is new, next level, level up, next game, better game, like better system. It's always something more exciting. And then you put them in a fifth grade classroom and you just watch as they glaze over and then they click into some other gear that is the pleasure system of their brain reverting back to novelty-seeking behavior, which is not satisfied by stillness. Novelty-seeking behavior works like an addiction, and you'll find yourself bouncing from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to try and fill the void of that feeling that you had with the novelty, the new stuff. And so you'll find yourself jittery and uh, scattered in a meeting. That's why I can't sit through committee meetings. This is my biggest like, weakness in my job right now. I can't sit through a committee meeting without going, oh, I should check my email, oh, I should check my phone, I should do this, I should go to the bathroom, I should do this. And then I'm like, I can handle all of this and still pay attention. Do you think I can? Never. And then they call on me. What do you think, Eric? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good idea, Bob. You know, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't know. Uh, and we all find ourselves in situations like that because attention is a limited resource. We cannot process all of these things at the same time. Now, if um, you are someone who struggles with something like this, you need to know that there is hope. Um, there is hope. There is another system that is intended, designed by God, I believe, to, to govern the other two. I think it's all designed by God, but I think this one is intended in a hierarchical sense to govern the other two. And even neurology is, is supporting this, that the other two systems kind of work like the houses of Congress and they send proposals up the chain of command. Like they send it to the, the president's desk to be signed or vetoed. And the executive system functions in that way. And so, for example, you know, uh, you're, you're presented with a, a bottle of Topo Chico. And your, uh, your first system, what's it called? Habit system? Bottle, drink. And your pleasure system's like, oh, it's hot, and Topo Chico's delicious, take it, drink it, it's gonna be awesome, do it! But your, but, but your executive system's like, oh, whoa, boys, I, I don't know about this. Uh, it could be someone else's bottle. It might, it might be an empty bottle, or it could be one of those plastic bottles of Topo Chico, which, absolutely worthless. It's not the same. It's not the same. Um, and so your executive system goes, ah, I don't know. That's like the conscience God gives us. Paul says that God speaks through our conscience sometimes. That's, what the, that's what the, how the brain is supposed to work. But have you ever, let me ask you something. Have you ever been like on the phone or in the middle of something like important and all, your brain, your most important parts of your brain are all wrapped up in that? And then you do something stupid like while you're on the phone? Like you draw some doodle and you got a phone, you're like, what, what? 
what is this? And you're trying to analyze it? Like, what's wrong with me? I'm, what would Freud say about this? Or like, or you, there's a cup in front of you, and you're like on the phone, and you're distracted, they're like asking for more money for something, and blah, 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 blah. And you take a drink of something, and oh, God, it's like somebody's dip cup or something, you know, it's like, Ugh! you ever do that? Yeah, we all do that. Because that's what happens when the executive system of your brain is preoccupied or overwhelmed, and the other systems are sending proposals up the chain of command, and there's no one there to govern them. The thing about it is that um, your executive system works so hard all the time that it fatigues. And this uh, is something Dr. Lachaud talked about, but, but it wears out. And the moment the, executive, the neurons in your executive system begin to fray, they don't get enough rest. You don't close your eyes often enough. You don't sleep enough. You know, anything can go wrong. And the moment there's a sign of weakness there, there is like a coup in your brain. And these other two systems take over. And that's how distraction happens. Now, I think God's wisdom is in the design of our brains. And I think um, it's made that way for a reason. But I think we have to know how it works so that we can make sense of things like, hey, honor the Sabbath. Every seventh day, shut it down. Shut it down. Because your brain needs to recalibrate. And what's crazy is that a lot of these studies show that it's about every seventh day that the rhythm of your brain needs a reset. You need to rest, shut it down, turn it off. Just be. And if you power through that seventh day instead of shutting it down, those other systems have more ability to overcome. And you become more and more distracted, more and more surface level, superficial, unable to be intimate with God or anybody else. And you find yourself uh, a distraction addict. Dr. Lachaud uh, finished his talk by saying, your brain is at war with itself. Again, a secular doctor talking about something other than prayer but this resonated with my prayer life. If I could add a fifth option to that, or sixth option to that Facebook poll that I mentioned earlier, I, I probably would put war, because more often than not, prayer feels like a battle. A battle of wills inside my own head. It reminds me of a very popular passage of the Apostle Paul, who you would think had it all together, but even he struggled with this battle in his own mind. He said in Romans chapter 7, I don't understand the stuff that I do. What I want to do, I don't do, but I do what I hate. And I don't do the good that I want to do, but this evil stuff that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. What a wretched man that I am. This is uh, sadly how a lot of my 10-minute prayer moments have ended over the last few weeks. What a wretched man that I am. Because, again, that's how distraction works, is not only to rob us of intimacy with God, but to shame us for ha not having intimacy with God, not being able to focus but there's hope only, only if you understand the battle you're up against and only if you know that to win any battle you must strategize. And so in addition to understanding how your brain works, and I hope this little foray into neurology has helped a little bit, um, that helps us strategize, but I also think we have to see the spiritual side of this. I can't explain what I'm about to tell you, but I know it's true. 
there's a spiritual force in the universe that's on our side and there's a spiritual force in the universe that wants us dead. And I see that spirit working in my life not to make me a horrible killer of people, but just to make me superficially distracted. Y'all, I'm not even lying when I tell you that this week as I'm preparing a sermon on distraction, it was the most distracting week <laughs> I've ever had. I'm not even joking, like ask anyone close to me, it was the craziest, most chaotic. It was fun and glorious and wonderful and I went to an Astros game and they won and I, I went to this event with these guys where we just drank wine and ate meat all night. Like who doesn't want that? And, and I've got a house that we're working on and, and it's a new house and I'm so happy and I'm just amazed in these two puppies that I love so much but they're a mess and they require all kinds of time and attention and, and you know, I've got like 50,000 mosquito bites on me right now. For some reason, I, just, I can't focus on anything. Something tells me that's exactly how my enemy wants it. Mm. There's this uh, story from an uh, obscure book, First Kings in the Old Testament, and it's a story about this prophet Elijah, and um, it's, uh, I think it's a story about prayer. Elijah, prior to this, He's gotten himself into some trouble, and uh, he has a warrant out for his arrest and for his death. Uh, the queen, Jezebel, doesn't like Elijah, and she's put a hit out on him. And so Elijah feels urgently alone. I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of desperation, but that, I think, is also what a life of distractions does to us, because we never get intimate with anyone. We find ourselves in moments of stress incredibly alone. And that's where Elijah is in this story. He's out in the wilderness on his own and he wants to die. He's done. And God meets him there and this is what happens. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Everybody's corrupt in Elijah's life. Like he's, he feels incredibly alone. They've thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and now I'm the only one that's left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said to them, uh, uh, sorry, God said to him, go out, Elijah, and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said again, the same words, but I imagine in a different tone of voice this time. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and now I'm the only one that's left, and now they want to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And the Lord proceeded to give Elijah instructions on how to live. And gave him protection and provision. This story is unique, which is pretty special because there's a lot of ancient holy texts, and a lot of them speak about God or their gods in the same ways. So in every tradition, in ancient uh, Mesopotamia, or in any ancient culture, God or the gods have always spoken in the same ways. Every god or set of gods has spoken through the sound and fury of thunder through the power of earthquakes and natural disasters, through the force of winds that shake the mountains, through the fury of a fire the gods have spoken from on high, including in the Bible and other parts, God speaks with wrath. And this is the only passage, the only one, anywhere in any holy text, where any God speaks in a whisper. Y'all, I think this is important. I think this God and this story is trying to teach us something about his nature and how he is toward us. Not always loud and thunderous and violent, sometimes gentle. can't hear a whisper until you stand still, right? You can't hear a whisper until you're quiet. And you only hear whispering from someone who wants you to be close enough to hear them when they're whispering. Sometimes I think we bring God all of our chaos. And when it's time to pray, we bring all the storms of life, all the winds of change, all the distractions, all the fires, everything to God. And we say, God, why aren't you talking to us? And the wind is blowing around us. And my phone and my email and my family and my team, like, oh, how do I hear from God? And God's like, Sometimes hearing from God means shutting it down. It means, I didn't have it with me. That's how disciplined I am. Turning it off. <laughs> Y'all know what I was looking for. <laughs> Turning it off. Not being available. Hey, it'll be okay, I promise. To not be available for 20 minutes the world will keep spinning. Like, be present with God and no one else. Have you ever wondered 
spiritually speaking, why it is that we fear that so much. Are we really that afraid of being bored for a minute? That's our surface level answer. I don't think that's it. I think we know that if we sit still and quiet with God, he'll show us something that will change our lives. And I think we like things as they are pretty good. Sitting with God in silence will always change your life. So really it comes down to overcoming fear, right? I was thinking this week about how my whole life I've done all my best praying and writing and thinking and reflecting and meditating 30,000 feet up in an airplane. Why is that? Why, why do I feel like if I flew more, I would be the most prolific author? Like, more than you know who up the street. Like, I would totally, I would rock it. Like, I would be writing books like crazy if I just flew more. Why? Because, <laughs> why? Anyway, um, because there's no distractions up there. Like, you don't get texts up there. You can pay Delta $14.99 and the texts still don't come through up there. That never works. Why am I so productive up there? There's no ESPN to check up there. I just write and I pray. And there's just enough like white noise to keep me from losing my mind, you know? Like I just, it's beautiful. Sometimes I don't even want the plane to land. I'm in such a good place with God. And I'm in coach. <laughs> but I still, I just, <sighs> I was wondering this week about just recreating that somehow down here. And you have to, you have to look for it. You have to carve out the time and the space. You have to value it like you would value something else in your life that you prioritize. This is relevant. This is important more than anything else. This 15, 20, whatever minutes a day with God in silence, just you, your whole self before him, fearless, listening. <clears throat> There's nothing that more that matters more than this. God still speaks. He speaks in a whisper. He speaks through his word. And it's amazing to see how related his word and prayer are, by the way. The more you pray and hear from God, the more you read the Bible and see a word from him. The more you read the Bible, the more you want to pray to him. Like Those things go hand in hand. Take your Bible into prayer with you. He speaks through your conscience. He speaks through your community, your accountability groups, your brothers and sisters that pray with you. He speaks as he's always spoken. But if you're always distracted, you'll never hear the words he has for you. And no matter how much you have in this life and how much things are going your way, what a great house, what a great wife, what a great kid, what a great whatever job, everything. You can have it all and still feel lost and empty because you were made not for that stuff. You were made for this, to sit and be still with God and to speak and to hear his voice. 
words when you pray. Don't be afraid of the silence. Put yourself, your whole self before him. And just for a few minutes, be his and only his. For some of us, it's time to grow up and stop praying like babies. You can still pray childlike prayers. Father, I love you. Daddy, I love you. All that stuff still applies. But some of us are praying like babies. Come on, give me what I want. If he doesn't, like you're on to someone else. One thing to the next, one toy to the next, whatever. Like you're just, and the questions you ask are like the questions a baby would ask. When I was raising babies, Gio and I, we came to a place where we had to verbalize our babies. You know what that means? You stop giving them what they want because when they're little, they cry and they want a bottle. You give them a bottle. Of course, you give them a bottle. They cry, they change their diaper. Of course, you change their diaper. But then they keep crying. They have everything they need. They keep crying. Why? Because they want to own you. got to ferberize your baby. Let him cry. And it's hard. I laid down there many nights, my baby crying through the monitor. I was crying too. I just want to be with my baby. Because I'm a soft-hearted dad, you know, but you got to ferberize your baby. And some of us need to ferberize our prayer life too. And grow up. Realize that your father's calling you not into a transactional relationship, but into a loving one, he wants to know you and be known by you. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for how um, we have judged you, for not speaking over our chaos and over our storms and over our distractions. Truly, uh, there have been times, all of us, where we've been like that friend who's there, but not really. So we seek forgiveness and we own our mistake and we want to repent and sit with you, know you and be known by you. This, we know, is our true purpose. So we thank you for being patient with us as we grow to pray, no longer like babies, but like children who love you purely and want to be with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.